Christchurch, New Malden, 17th of November 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurtz speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, the Covenant and the Law. Okay, well, it's always uh, pretty disappointing to discover that something is a little bit more complicated than we had assumed. Lots of you here will know that I uh, love history, and that's been the case ever since I was about five or six years old. But when I was that age, history was still essentially about goodies versus baddies. And I still remember quite vividly the shock on discovering that some of my childhood heroes, people like Richard the Lionheart or Oliver Cromwell, were a lot more mixed as characters than I had thought. But of course, life is far more complicated, isn't it, than these simplistic categories that we often have as children. And once we get over the disappointment of that and the, the shock of finding that things are a little bit more complicated than we might imagine they are or should be, once we get over the disappointment of that, what we actually find in all areas of life are answers that are better, more convincing, more interesting, and more informative guides to what life is actually all about. And this week, in our journey through the book of Romans, we have reached chapter 7. And it's one of the most complicated parts of Paul's teaching. That's why, as you hear it read, you think, crumbs, what's all this about? It's Paul's treatment of the Jewish law. And by this point in the letter, Paul has got quite a lot of explaining to do. Partly because he's said a number of things about the Jewish law that could seem extremely negative, but also because he's said a number of things in throwaway statements in earlier parts of the letter that can appear just, frankly, very strange and mysterious. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jewish law, the Torah, the teaching that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai to pass on to Israel, within the Old Testament, that law is pretty much seen in an exclusively positive manner. We had an example of that in our first reading that Margaret read to us from Psalm 19. That psalm uh, included within it, the law of the Lord is perfect, it said. Reviving the soul, the statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. If we look at the very first psalm that occurs in the Bible, Psalm 1, it's similar. It speaks of the blessedness of the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the longest psalm in the entire Bible, Psalm 119, it's again full of praise for God's law. And what are they suggesting about God's law? Well, more than that, what are they emphatically stating about God's law? They're saying it's wonderful. It's God-given instruction. It's there to guide and direct and bring life to God's people. And Jesus seems to agree. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we read this in chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then along comes St. Paul. 
and make thing, makes things quite a bit more complex. We've already seen during this series Paul's emphasis upon Christians being justified or declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ, rather than through obedience or observance of the Jewish law. And Paul says in chapter 3, verse 31, you might want to uh, look at some of these uh, verses as I mention them. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 31, that's on page 1131, he then says that such faith doesn't nullify the law, but upholds it. But then more mysteriously, Paul makes a number of comments that suggest that the law was actually given to make the problem of sin much worse. So look at verse 20 of chapter 3. This occurs near the end of a section in which Paul has argued that Israel is just as trapped under sin as the rest of the world. And he finishes by saying in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Well, we get that bit because that's what he's just talked about. But then he says, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. Leaves it there for the moment, doesn't particularly unpack it. Then in chapter 4, when Paul's talking about God's promise to Abraham being received by faith rather than through the law, he adds in verse 14, and where there's no law, there is no transgression. And then in chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says this, For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there was no law. And later in the same chapter, chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says this, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. So that the trespass, the sin, might increase. So in the light of all of these various statements that Paul makes, scattered at different parts in the earlier parts of Romans, what on earth is his view of the Jewish law? What role did it have in God's plan of salvation? And was that role positive or was it negative or was it a strange mixture between the two? Well, there have been uh, some biblical scholars who have read all of this and have accused Paul of being totally confused on the matter, not able to make his mind up, saying certain things that then box him into a corner, which means he has to say other things, and actually if we're trying to look for consistency, we might as well give up because it's just a complete jumble. There's particularly a, a Finnish scholar called uh, Rezanen who has argued that very, very strongly. Paul boxes himself into a corner once he says that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ rather than observing the Jewish law. He doesn't really want to denigrate the law despite some of the things he says about it. So he says that it's holy, it's good, it's righteous, but really it's just a confused mess. And that's why he makes all these seemingly contradictory and frankly bizarre statements about it. Now if we don't want to go down that line, we've got to come up with a better alternative. We've got to try and work out how all these various things that Paul says about the law come together. And I think the answer is found within chapter 7. All of those earlier references to the role of the law, they're sort of preparatory statements for Paul uh, making a fuller and clearer treatment of the law, which he does in chapter 7. 
And Paul has already said, and we followed this in earlier talks in this series, that salvation is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone, rather than observing the law. And that doesn't change uh, within this chapter. Paul doesn't go back on that. He's also keen to make clear, as he does in verse 12, in a very emphatic statement, that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Well, he says the law is holy, and then he says the commandment, meaning the same thing, basically, is holy, righteous, and good. But the way that Paul joins those two things together, and the thing that is really strange and mysterious, and probably to most of his Jewish contemporaries really shocking, is the way that Paul then gives to this good and holy and righteous law a role that could be described as this, massively negative in order to be positive. Massively negative in order to be positive. Because what Paul says in chapter 7 of Romans is basically this. Sin, this destructive, negative, life-destroying force, that's the problem in the world. That's the problem that God is committed to solving. But a vital part of God's plan, a vital part of God's solution to the problem of sin, as Israel indeed properly believed, was giving his people the law. But the way in which that law then performed this function was highly mysterious. Because what it brought about was paradoxically a huge increase in Israel's sin. That, in a nutshell, is what Paul is saying in verses 7 to 25 of chapter 7. The law was separate from sin. It was holy, righteous, and good, Paul says. But its effect was nonetheless to amplify that sin and draw it out. That's what Paul's talking about in chapter 7, verse 8, when he says, Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. And again in verse 13 when he says, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The role of the Jewish law, according to Paul, was to expose and draw out sin. Particularly that sin that might otherwise lie hidden and undetected within God's people. So use your imagination for a moment. Imagine a dark cellar full of decaying, rotting food, but hidden in darkness, with a huge door that's closed and therefore keeping the stench of all that rotting food at bay. The role of the law, Paul appears to be saying, was rather like that door being opened so that that rottenness could be seen and its stench become inescapable. So part of the way we're to understand the role of the law is exposing that sin that was there, but perhaps undetected. But Paul actually goes further than that. The role of the law, he says, went further than merely exposing sin. The law was so thorough, Paul says, that it actually drew out potential or latent sin. Paul gives an example of the Tenth Commandment on coveting. I wouldn't, even, wouldn't have even known, Paul says, what coveting was. But once the law said 
do not covet, sin then produced, he says, all sorts of covetous desires within me. How are we to understand this? Well, this is a dangerous illustration, but I'll use it anyway. Back in the 1970s, there was a sitcom, sitcom which uh, rightly couldn't be shown now, and it was called Love Thy Neighbour. Nod your head if you remember it. You might remember it. A lot of us will have blanked it out of our minds. It was about a black couple moving next door to a white couple, and all of the comedy was based on the tension that that caused. Now, most of the humour in Love Thy Neighbour would be totally unacceptable today, and it probably should have been then, in all honesty. But what it did illustrate rather well was the way in which just the presence of this black couple, Bill and Barbie the names were, and through no fault of their own whatsoever, just their mere presence drew out the ugliest and most horrible and stupid and ignorant attitudes in their next-door neighbour, Eddie. And the Jewish law, Paul is saying, is a bit like that. Holy, righteous and good, and precisely because of that, not only exposing sin, but actually drawing it out to its fullest extent. Now, by itself, that would be a pretty negative message, wouldn't it? And from verse 14, Paul is clear about the plight that it produced. Paul is talking in these verses, I believe, about the people of Israel. And I believe that he uses I, he uses the first person, because he doesn't want to be talking about them over there. He wants to completely identify himself with his fellow Jews. That's part of the reason he's writing Romans, because he wants to encourage love for Jews from Gentile Christians. And Paul says in these verses, Israel wanted to do good. She wanted to delight in God's law, in the way those Psalms uh, that I mentioned earlier spoke about. But she couldn't, because through her possession of the law, sin had taken up op occupation within her so thoroughly. The desire to do good, the desire to obey the law was there, Paul says, but the effect of that law was to send sin on the rampage. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And the effect of all of this, the effect of this law that Paul insists is holy, righteous and good, was to make God's very people totally captive in sin, totally trapped within it. Why on earth would a God of love do that? Well, there's a simply wonderful answer. The reason why God did this was precisely so that all of that horrible, dehumanizing, life-destroying sin, fully exposed and drawn out to its fullest extent, could then be carried in the body of Israel's Messiah, Israel's King, and therefore totally and utterly destroyed when he died on the cross. Who can rescue me from this body of sin, Paul says near the end of chapter 7, followed by, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's one of the reasons it's so important that every time we see Christ mentioned in the New Testament, we don't think, oh, surname for Jesus. We think, no, what it means, Messiah, King of Israel. The way 
that the atonement works is through Jesus being Israel's representative Messiah. All of that sin and that evil piled up within Israel gets passed on to Israel's king and is carried in his body when he died on the cross. And all this makes sense of the first six verses of chapter 7, which I haven't referred to yet, where Paul speaks, as he does in the previous chapter, of us dying with Christ and therefore being released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom, as we'll see next week, enables the righteous requirements of the law to be fully met within us. And this, of course, links to all of those positive things about the law, not only spoken about by Paul, but by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere and within the Old Testament. All of those statements in the Old Testament, they don't become redundant, they're fulfilled. The Jewish law, to summarise, was holy in revealing God's will and forming part of his covenant plan. It was surprising in its role of actually doing this by paradoxically increasing Israel's sin and it was fulfilled through God's spirit taking up residence within those who were in Christ and with the power of sin destroyed producing an obedience within Jesus' followers that actually more than fulfilled the requirements of the law. Now it is a bit complex more than that, it's a bit strange, it's a bit odd, it's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? And I hope it hasn't lost you this morning. But the value, I think, of this chapter is the way that it shows us the utter intricacy and depth of God's covenant plan. One of Paul's foremost aims in writing Romans is to get the Gentile Christians in Rome to love not just those Jews who are their brothers and sisters in Christ, not just those Jews who have turned to Christ and uh, belong to him, but also those Jews who weren't yet Christians. Paul wants the Gentile Christians in Rome to really love those Jews because he wants them to recognise the absolutely crucial and indeed in some ways sacrificial role that Israel had in God's covenant plan. Paul wants the Gentile Christians, and most of us here are Gentile Christians, to recognise the, the pain and the suffering uh, involved in Israel's calling, which was all part of the process of God bringing his salvation to those Gentile Christians in Rome. He wants them to love those Jews and be utterly grateful for their role in dealing with sin, ultimately through the death of Jesus Christ, even if they couldn't recognise that, so that they, as Gentile Christians, could be forgiven and incorporated within God's covenant family. And that included sympathy, as well as gratitude for the plight that the law created for Israel, precisely in order that the sin of the world could then be passed on to Israel's Messiah, in Jesus and destroyed through his death on the cross. And at a time when anti-Semitism is sadly on the rise, it's not an out-of-date message. We do need to note this. We do need to be utterly grateful to the people of Israel and to the Jews. That doesn't mean that we have negative attitudes towards anyone else at all, but we do need along with love for all of God's people that he created, 
we need to include within that love and gratitude to the people of Israel and to the Jews, wherever they stand in terms of their response to Jesus at this moment, we need to display love and care and gratitude to them for their crucial role in God's covenant plan of salvation. And when we get on after Christmas, we'll take a bit of a break in December, but after Christmas, when we get on to Romans chapters 9 to 11, we'll see that is a crucial theme uh, in the way that Paul wants God's new covenant people to relate to those who've carried God's covenant promise for generations, and we'll get on to that, as I say, in the new year. But beyond that application, beyond that challenge, it's also confirmation to us this morning, this passage, about the mysterious way in which God works. And hopefully it's an encouragement to us when we can't quite detect what God's up to and we're left a bit perplexed by things that happen. Hopefully when we read this sort of passage, we can have greater confidence about God. God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. That's what the famous hymn says, doesn't it? God is working his purpose out, and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that will surely be when the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I've learned that hymn just by hearing it over the years rather than actually um, sitting down and actually having to learn the words. It's a wonderful sign of the way that worship can change us. We sing those hymns, they just enter into us. But it's got a fantastic message. And the way that God works that purpose out, if Romans chapter 7 is anything to go by, is often very, very mysterious, isn't it? All of us who are Christians, and particularly if we've been Christians for some time, go through times when we think, what on earth is God doing? All of us go through times when we think, why would God possibly allow that thing to happen? Or we can think, why on earth wouldn't God prevent that thing from happening? It seems so blindingly obvious what a God of love should do at that point. If only if he gave us control for a day, perhaps we would show him. If you haven't seen the film Bruce Almighty, do watch it, because that happens. There are things happening in my life at the moment involving my family, people very close to me, where I do think that. I think, why, is, why, why doesn't God step in? and sort that out. But we're told in that famous verse from Romans 8, and we'll look at this next week with the help of David Taylor, we're told in that famous verse that a lot of us know, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. That's a verse that a lot of us do know, and it's repeated very often. But perhaps Romans 7 can help us to go a little bit further in interpreting that verse by the way in which it demonstrates the huge amount of mystery involved in God's fulfilment of his purpose. You see, no one before Paul would have guessed. They couldn't have guessed. No one could have worked this out, the way that God's law would have fulfilled its covenant purpose. They knew that the law was given by God to fulfill his covenant purpose, but no one could have dreamt of the way that God was actually going to do this and how mysterious it was. All this stuff about the law coming to increase the trespass and to make sin utterly sinful, it is so counterintuitive. But then so was God sending a Messiah 
to die on a cross, which is the thing that makes this mysterious role of the law make sense. God's ways are mysterious, but he is nonetheless working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. And Romans chapter 7, with its strange and complicated account of the role that the Jewish law played in that purpose, reminds us that much of the time we simply can't see the mysterious way in which God is working. Our greatest insights, though, will come when we try and see the connection between those things that perplex us with the death of Jesus on the cross. Our greatest insights come when we actually do try and connect those things, the things that perplex and upset us and the death of Jesus. We get further in understanding God's purpose when we put those things together, but a lot of mystery still remains. But guided by this particular insight that Romans 7 gives us into the role of the Jewish law, let's be confident that God, however things might look, is working his purpose out until that glorious point in the future, which we'll hear about more next week, when his covenant plan is complete and the earth, as that wonderful hymn uh, does say, is indeed filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father God, many of us are very often perplexed and confused by what you're up to. And at points, that perplexity can really drag us down. But we thank you, Lord God, that you are working to a purpose, that you are sovereign over this world and what's more committed to bringing your covenant love to the world. And guided by the things that you have revealed in this passage to us this morning, we pray that you'd give us a greater confidence in you and that however things look and however disastrous and negative things can sometimes seem, that you are in control and you are working your purpose out. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to keep faith in you. We thank you so much for the wonderful way in which you sent Jesus to die so that our sins could be carried by Jesus on the cross and forgiven. And we thank you for the role of the people of Israel the Jews within your covenant plan and would you guide us to that love that Paul calls Gentile Christians to show towards the Jews within this letter to the Romans. Keep us showing that love and keep us faithful in you and able to keep faith through all the mysteries of seeing you work out your purpose, your covenant plan for this world and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.